is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. At the start of the 20th century, Ireland had two separate police forces. The unarmed Dublin Metropolitan Police were based solely in the capital, and the armed Royal Irish Constabulary policed the rest of the country. Due to the fact that the DMP were unarmed, they didn't come under attack by nationalists as much as the RIC did as Crown Forces, with the exception of the notorious G Division, the DMP's plainclothes detective section known as the G-Men, who were concerned with monitoring politically subversive activities. Many members of the DMP viewed the Irish Volunteers' activities with scorn and disapproval, but since it was legal at the time to carry a rifle and drill men as part of a paramilitary organisation, the uniformed police took a relatively neutral role. Some members of the force had sympathies for the nationalist movement. One such policeman was Patrick J. Birmingham. I joined the uh, Dublin Metropolitan Police in July 1907. During my years in the force, I took an active part in athletics. On the Saturday previous to the landing of arms at Hout, I was at the DMP Sports in Ballsbridge and I won a few prizes. I was with a man named Andy O'Neill who was a comrade of mine. Sometime after 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, the 27th of July 1914, a message came through that all available police were to be rushed to the Hout Road. I was off duty but was one of the men who were sent. We had no idea of the reason we were being rushed to the Hout Road. On the way out, I was wondering what our mission was. I mentioned to my comrade Andy O'Neill, I wonder if this has anything to do with the Nationalist Volunteers, because the Ulster Volunteers were allowed land arms at Larn some months ago, and no action was taken against them. O'Neill answered, If they are trying to rush us against the Nationalist Volunteers, here's one who will have nothing to do with it. I replied, I am with you in that. We arrived at Hout Road at 12.30, where about 100 DMP men had assembled in charge of Assistant Commissioner Harold. He didn't say to us what our job was to be. After about 10 minutes' wait, a battalion of the volunteers came from the Hout direction, armed with rifles. Our men were ordered to disarm them. Some of them obeyed, but a number of us lined against the wall and refused to take any action. I should say that about 12 or 14 of us refused. Some of the men took some rifles from the volunteers and there was a bit of a skirmish. Harold saw us standing against the wall. He came over to us and asked us if we refused to obey orders. Whichever of them was asked stepped forward and said that he did refuse. With that, the remainder replied that they likewise refused, but didn't take a leading part by stepping forward. He took a note of each individual and then directed the sergeant to take Constable O'Neill and Constable Gleeson to the Bridewell with a view to having them suspended. The remainder of us were permitted to go home any way we wished. In the meantime, the volunteer party had marched past us. The majority of the volunteers managed to hold on to their rifles. Later that day, crowds at Bachelor's Walk mocked British forces for having failed to confiscate the weapons. In response, some soldiers opened fire on the crowd, killing three people and injuring 38. In addition to the publicity coup secured by the volunteers by landing the rifles in broad daylight, 
this incident would have caused widespread outrage throughout Ireland. This in turn cemented the opinions of many against the British forces, including, perhaps, those of members of the police such as Patrick J. Birmingham. I knew that whilst Constable Gleeson and O'Neill would be dismissed since a charge was preferred against them, the same treatment would not be meted out to us. I felt that a charge would hang over us for about two months or so until things quieted down and then each one of us who had refused to take action against the volunteers would find ourselves transferred and heavily fined. To obviate such action, I got my dissenting comrades to come in before the superintendent in Green Street and we demanded that we should be put on the same charge as O'Neill and Gleeson, as we were equally guilty. We emphatically told him that if he refused to do this, we would storm the castle. We were told to remain in the hallway until he consulted with the Dublin Castle authorities. And after a while, a message came through that there was no charge against any of us. O'Neill and Gleeson were, however, dismissed and after some months were reinstated. The matter got a great deal of publicity at the time in the public press. I could not say what were the reactions of the DMP to the volunteers following the Holt gun running. We had instructions, however, as ordinary constables of the DMP to pay attention to halls where political meetings were held and volunteers were drilling, and to submit our reports on them. This was a matter of routine as far as we were concerned, and I cannot say if any notice was taken of our reports. Any of the reports that I filled up anyway, I never gave any names. On the first day of the Easter Rising, three DMP men were shot, causing the commissioner to pull all his men off the street for the remainder of the week, which resulted in widespread looting. The 1916 revolution came as a surprise to me and my comrades. I remember on Easter Monday 1916, I was off duty, and I was passing along Patrick's Close, when I was arrested by a number of volunteers, fully armed, and brought as a prisoner to Fumbley Lane, where five or six other DMP men were held prisoner. After a while I succeeded in escaping, and the others were removed from there to Jacobs, where they spent the whole week. They were released unharmed. Following the surrender, a number of us were brought up to Newmarket Street Station to identify the volunteers who had taken us prisoners. We pretended we never saw the men before. One rather amusing incident I remember towards the end of Easter week is seeing a British soldier who was on duty as sentry at Patrick's Close near Kevin Street Barracks, and who was very much intoxicated, firing indiscriminately in the air and at windows and doors. Then he would lay down his rifle and light his cigarette and then carry on firing as before. To me, he was a positive danger to civilians, so we arrested him and brought him to the police barracks. He was later handed over to the military authorities. There is no record of Patrick J. Birmingham becoming involved in any nationalist organisations, although his leniency towards the movement is indicative of the variety of opinions across the force. He continued his efforts in athletics and went on to become a record-breaking discus champion, representing Ireland at the 1924 Olympics. He also played for the Irish Free State football team in 1934. He remained in the DMP after its merger with Angardi Siakana in 1925 and died in 1959.
For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Ireland's history, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>